Part Two of Stamped Caution by Raymond Z. Galoon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Part Two of Stamped Caution by Raymond Z. Galoon. I looked at Edel, still in his air-conditioned cage. His stalked eyes had a glow, and they swayed nervously. Here was the home planet that he had never seen. Was he eager, or frightened, or both? His education and experience were earthly. He knew no more of Mars than we did. Yet, now that he was here and probably at home, did difference of physical structure and emotion make him feel that the rest of us were enemies? forever too different for friendly contact. My hide began to pucker. High in the sky some kind of aircraft glistened. On the distant turnpike there were the shining specks of vehicles that vanished from sight behind a ridge shaggy with vegetation. Miller had a tight, nervous smile. Remember, men, he said, passivity. Three men can't afford to get into a fight with a whole planet. We put on spacesuits, which we'd need if someone damaged our rocket. It had been known for years that Martian air was too thin and far too poor in oxygen for human lungs. Even Edel, in his cage, had an oxygen mask that Klein had made for him. We had provided him with this because the Martian atmosphere drifting away through the ages might be even leaner than the mixture we'd given Edel on Earth. That had been based on spectroscopic analysis at forty to sixty million miles distance, which isn't close enough for any certainty. Now all we could do was wait and see what would happen. I know that some jerks trying to make contact with the inhabitants of an unknown world would just barge in and take over. Maybe they'd wave a few times and grin. If instead of being met like brothers they were shot at, they'd be inclined to start shooting. If they got out alive, their hatred would be everlasting. We had more sense. Yet passivity was a word that I didn't entirely like. It sounded spineless. The art of balancing naive trust against hard cynicism to try to produce something that makes a little sense isn't always easy. Though we knew something of Martians, we didn't know nearly enough. Our plan might be wrong. We might turn out to be dead idiots in a short time. Still, it was the best thing that we could think of. The afternoon wore on. With the dropping temperature, a cold, pearly haze began to form around the horizon. The landscape around us was too quiet, and there was plenty of vegetation at hand to provide cover. Maybe it had been a mistake to land here. But we couldn't see that an arid place would be any good either. We had needed to come to a region that was probably inhabited. We saw a Martian, only once, scampering across an open glade, holding himself high on his stiffened tentacles. Here, where the gravity was only thirty-eight percent of the terrestrial, that was possible. It lessened the eeriness a lot to know beforehand what a Martian looked like. He looked like Edel. Later something pinged savagely against the flank of our rocket. So there were trigger-happy individuals here, too. But I remembered how on Earth Edel's cage had been surrounded by machine-guns and cyanogen tanks, rigged to kill him quickly if it became necessary. That hadn't been malice, only sensible precaution against the unpredictable. 
And wasn't our being surrounded by weapons here only the same thing from another viewpoint? Yet it didn't feel pleasant, sensible or not. There were no more shots for half an hour, but our tension mounted with the waiting. Finally Klein said through his helmet phone, Maybe Etel ought to go out and scout around now. Etel was naturally the only one of us who had much chance for success. Go only if you really want to, Etel, Miller said. It could be dangerous even for you. But Etel had already put on his oxygen mask. Air hissed into his cage from the greater pressure outside as he turned a valve. Then he unlatched the cage door. He wouldn't be harmed by the brief exposure to atmosphere of Earth density while he moved to our rocket's airlock. Now he was getting around high on his tendrils, like a true Martian. He left his specially built pistol behind, according to plan. We had weapons, but we didn't mean to use them unless everything went dead wrong. Edel's tendrils touched the dusty surface of Mars. A minute later he disappeared behind some scrub growths. Then for ten minutes the pendant silence was heavy. It was broken by the sound of a shot coming back to us thinly through the rarefied air. Maybe they got him, Craig said anxiously. Nobody answered. I thought of an old story I'd read about a boy being brought up by wolves. His ways were so like an animal's that hunters had shot him. He had come back to civilization dead. Perhaps there was no other way. By sundown Etel had not returned. So three things seemed possible. He had been murdered. He had been captured. Or else he had deserted to his own kind. I began to wonder. What if we were complete fools? What if there were more than differences of body and background, plus the dread of newness between Earthmen and Martians preventing their friendship? What if Martians were basically malevolent? But speculation was useless now. We were committed to a line of action. We had to follow it through. We ate a meager supper. The brief dusk changed to a night blazing with frigid stars, but the darkness on the ground remained until the jagged lump of light that was Phobos, the nearer moon, arose out of the west. Then we saw two shapes rushing toward our ship to find cover closer to it. As they hid themselves behind a clump of cactiform shrubs, I had only the memory of how I had seen them for a moment, their odd masks and accoutrements glinting their supporting tendrils looking like tattered rags come alive in the dim moonlight. We'd turned the lights out in our cabin so we couldn't be seen through the windows, but now we heard soft scraping sounds against the outer skin of our rocket. Probably they meant that the Martians were trying to get in. I began to sweat all over, because I knew what Miller meant to do. Here was a situation that we had visualized beforehand. We could shut them out till dawn, Miller," I whispered hoarsely. We'd all feel better if the meeting took place in daylight, and there'd be less chance of things going wrong. But Miller said, We can't tell what they'd be doing in the dark meanwhile, Nolan. Maybe fixing to blow us up. So we'd better get this thing over with now. I knew he was right. Active resistance to the Martians could never save us if they intended to destroy us. We might have taken the rocket off the ground like a plane, seeking safety in the upper air for a while, if we could get it launched that way from the rough terrain, 
But using our jets might kill some of the Martians just outside. They could interpret it as a hostile act. We didn't matter much, except to ourselves, and our primary objective was to make friendly contact with the beings of this planet without friction if it could be done. If we failed, space travel might become a genuine menace to Earth. At Miller's order, Craig turned on our cabin lights. Miller pressed the controls of our ship's airlock. While its outer valve remained wide, the inner valve unsealed itself and swung slowly toward us. Our air whooshed out. The opening of that inner valve meant we were letting horror in. We kept out of line of possible fire through the open door. Our idea was to control our instinctive reactions to strangeness, to remain passive, giving the Martians a chance to get over their own probable terror of us by finding out that we meant no harm. Otherwise we might be murdering each other. The long wait was agony. In spite of the dehumidifying unit of my spacesuit, I could feel the sweat from my body collecting in puddles in the bottoms of my boots. A dozen times there were soft rustles and scrapes at the airlock, then sounds of hurried retreat. But at last a mass of gray-pink tendrils intruded over the threshold, and we saw the stalked eyes, faintly luminous in the shadowy interior of the lock. Grotesquely upended on its tentacles, the monster seemed to flow into the cabin. Over its mouth-palps was the cup of what must have been its oxygen mask. What was clearly the muzzle of some kind of pistol, smoothly machined, was held ready by a mass of tendrils that suggested gorgon hair. Behind the first monster was a second, similarly armed. Behind him was a third. After that I lost count as the horde, impelled by fear to grab control in one savage rush, spilled into the cabin with a dry-leaf rustle. All my instincts urged me to yank my automatic out of my belt and let go at that flood of horror. Yes, that was in me, although I'd been in intimate association with Edel for four years. Psychologists say that no willpower could keep a man's reflexes from withdrawing his hand from a hot stove for very long, and going for my gun seemed almost a reflex action. There was plenty of sound logic to back up the urge to shoot. In the presence of the unfathomable, how could you replace the tried defenses of instinct with intellectual ideas of good will? On the other hand, to shoot now would be suicide and ruin our hopes besides. So maybe there'd have to be a human sacrifice to faith between the planets. If we succeeded in following the plan, our faith would be proven either right or wrong. If we didn't act passively, the failure would be partly our fault. In any case, if we didn't get back to Earth, hatred and fear of the Martians would inevitably arise there, whether it had been the Martians' fault or ours. The message that Miller had left for the newscast might only give people the self-righteous attitude that earthly intentions had been good. If another expedition ever came to Mars, it might shoot any inhabitants on sight and maybe get wiped out itself. Still, how could we know that the Martians weren't preparing the kind of invasion of Earth that has been imagined so often? It was a corny notion, but the basis for it remained sound. Mars was a dying world. Couldn't the Martians still want a new planet to move to? All these old thoughts popped back into my head during that very bad moment, and if I was almost going for my pistol, how much worse was it for Craig and Klein and Miller, who hadn't been as friendly with Edel as I had been? <laughs>
Maybe we should have put our weapons out of our own reach in preparation for this incident. Then there would have been no danger of our using them. But any freedom of action was swiftly wrested from us. The Martians rolled over us in a wave. Thousands of dark tendrils with fine saw-like spines latched onto our bodies. I was glad that I wore a spacesuit, as much from the revulsion I felt at the direct contact as for the small protection it gave against injury. I am sure that there was panic behind that wild Martian rush. To get us pinned down and helpless quickly, they drove themselves in spite of their own fear of the horrid human forms. For did I feel a tremor in those tendrils, a tendency to recoil from me? I was trembling and sweating. Still, my impressions were vivid. Those monsters held us down as if they were melee beaters holding down trapped pythons. Maybe they had known beforehand what men looked like, from previous secret expeditions to Earth, just as we had known about Martians from Etel. But it wouldn't have made any difference. Or perhaps they weren't even aware that we were from the neighboring planet, but it would be obvious that we were from another world. Nothing from their own planet could be so strange. Our own reactions to the situation differed a little. Craig gasped curses through his helmet phones. Miller said, Easy, men, easy. It was as if he were trying to build up his own morale, too. I couldn't utter a sound. It wasn't hard for our captors to recognize our weapons. We were disarmed. They carried us out into the night and around a hill. We were piled onto a flat metallic surface. A vehicle under us began to throb and move. You could have called it a truck. The nature of its mechanism was hinted at only by a small frosty wisp of steam or vapor up front. Perhaps it came from a leak. The Martians continued to hold us down as savagely as ever. Now and then a pair of them would join the nerve ends of tendrils, perhaps to converse. Others would chirp or hoot for no reason that I could understand. The highway rolled away behind us. Under the light of Phobos, buildings passed, vague as buildings along a road usually are at night. It was the same with the clumps of vegetation. Lights, which might have been electrical, flashed into my eyes and passed by. In a deep valley through which we moved in part of our short trip, a dense, stratified fog arose between the lights and me. I noticed with an odd detachment that the fog was composed of minute ice crystals which glinted in the glow of the strange lamps. I tried to remember our course. I knew that I was generally east. Off in the night there were clangings and hisses that might have been factory noises. Once, Miller asked, is everybody okay? Klein's and Craig's responses were gruff and unsteady in the phones. Sure. More or less, if heart failure doesn't get me. I guess our skins are still intact, I said. We didn't talk after that. At last we entered a long downward slanting tunnel full of soft luminescence that seemed to come out of the white tiled walls themselves. My attention grew a little vague. It could be that my mind turned in on itself like a turtle drawing in its head for protection. In that state of semi-consciousness I experienced a phantasm. I imagined I was a helpless grub being dragged down into the depths of an anthill. But such a grub belongs at an anthill a lot more than a man belonged where I was going. 
This became plainer when the large tunnel ended and we were dragged and carried along winding burrows, never more than three feet in diameter. Mostly they were tiled, but often their walls were of bare rock or soil. Twice we passed through airlocks. I couldn't describe too much of what I saw or the noises I heard in those warrens. In one place incandescence glowed and wheels turned. In a great low-ceilinged chamber full of artificial sun-rays there was a garden with strange blooms. The architecture of the city was not altogether utilitarian, and it was not unpleasing. I saw a lot more, but my mind was somewhat fuzzy, probably from shock and fatigue. I know we traversed another chamber, where trays full of round lumps of soil were set in frames. A Martian nursery, no doubt. Some minutes later my companions and I were left in a small room, high enough so that we could stand erect in it. Here the Martians let go of us. We sprawled on the floor, faces down. We had had a busy day. Our nerve energy was burned out. Hopelessness warped all of my thoughts. I must have slipped into the coma of exhaustion. I had jangled dreams about Alice and the kids and home, and almost imagined I was there. Half awake again I had a cursing spree, calling myself fifty kinds of a numbskull. Be passive before the people of other worlds. Reassure them. How did we ever think up that one? We'd been crazy. Why didn't we at least use our guns when we had the chance? It wouldn't have made any difference to be killed right away. Now we were sacrificial lambs on the altar of a feather-brained idea that the inhabitants of worlds that had always been separate from the beginning should become friends, learn to swap and to benefit from the diverse phases of each other's cultures. How could Martians who hatched out of lumps of mud be like humans at all? Klein, Craig, and Miller and I were alone in that room. There were crystal-glazed spy windows in the walls. Perhaps we were still being observed. While I was sleeping, the exit had been sealed with a circular piece of glassy stuff. Near the floor there were vents through which air was being forced into the room. Hidden pumps, which must have been hastily rigged for our reception, throbbed steadily. Miller beside me had removed his oxygen helmet. His grin was slightly warped as he said to me, Well, Nolan, here's another parallel with what we've known before. We had to keep Edel alive in a cage. Now the same thing is being done to us. This could be regarded as a service, a favor. Yet I was more inclined to feel that I was like something locked up in a zoo. Maybe Edel's case was a little different, for the first thing he had known in life was his cage. I removed my oxygen helmet, too, mainly to conserve its air purifier unit, which I hoped I might need sometime soon, in an escape. Don't look so glum, Nolan, Miller told me. Here we have just what we need, a chance to observe and learn and know the Martians better. And it's the same for them in relation to us. It's the best situation possible for both worlds. I was thinking, mostly belatedly, of my wife and kids. Right then Miller was a crackpot to me, a monomaniac, a guy whose philosophical viewpoint went way beyond the healthy norm. And I soon found that Craig and Klein agreed with me now. Something in our attitude had shifted. I don't know how long we were in that sealed room. A week, perhaps. We couldn't see the daylight. Our watches had vanished along with our weapons. 
Sometimes there were sounds of much movement in the tunnels around us, sometimes little, but the variation was too irregular to indicate a change based on night and day. Lots of things happened to us. The air we breathed had a chemical smell, and the Martians kept changing its composition and density, constantly experimenting, no doubt. Now it would be oppressively heavy and humid. Now it would be so dry and thin that we began to feel faint. They also varied the temperature from below freezing to earthly desert heat, and I suspected that at times there was a drug in the air. Food was lowered to us in metal containers from a circular airlock in the ceiling. It was the same kind of gelatinous stuff that we had found in the wreck of the ship that had brought the infant Etel to Earth. We knew that it was nourishing. Its bland Swedishness was not to our taste, but we had to eat. Various apparatus was also lowered to us. There were odd mechanical puzzles that made me think how grotesquely earthly Martian scientific attitudes were. And there was a little globe on a wire, the purpose of which we never figured out, though Miller got an electric shock from it. I kept looking for Etel among the Martians at the spy windows, hoping that he'd turn up again. I had noticed that Martians showed variations of appearance, like humans, longer or shorter eye-stalks, lighter or darker tendrils. I figured I'd recognize Etel, but I didn't see him. We were none of us quite ourselves, not even Miller, whose scientific interest in the things around him sustained him even in captivity. Mine had worn out, and Klein and Craig were no better off. I was desperately homesick, and I felt a little ill besides. I managed to loosen the metal heel-plate from one of my boots, and with this, when I thought that no Martian was watching, I started to dig the gummy cement from around the circular glassy disk with which the main exit of our quarters had been sealed. Craig, Klein, and I worked at it in brief and sporadic shifts. We didn't really hope that we could escape. It was just something to do. We're going to try to get to the ship, Miller, if it's still there, I whispered once. Probably it won't work. Want to join up with the rest of us?" I just didn't think of him as being in command now, and he seemed to agree because he didn't protest against my high-handed way of talking. Also he didn't argue against a projected rashness that could easily get us killed. Apparently he understood that our lives weren't worth as much to us as things were. He smiled a little. I'll stick around, Nolan. If you do manage to get back to Earth, don't make the Martians sound too bad." I won't, I answered, troubled by an odd sense of regret. Loosening that exit disk proved in the end to be no special trick. Then we just waited for a lull in the activity in the tunnels around us. We all put on our oxygen helmets, Miller included, for the air pressure here in our cage would drop as soon as the loosened disk was dislodged. We put our shoulders against it and pushed. It popped outward. Then the three of us, with Miller staying behind, scrambled on hands and knees through the tunnel that lay before us. A crazy kind of luck seemed to be with us. For one thing, we didn't have to retrace our way along the complicated route by which we had been brought down into our prison. In a minute we reached a wide tunnel that slanted upward. A glassy rotary airlock worked by a simple lever, for, of course, most of the city's air would be pressurized to some extent for the Martians, led into it. 
The main passage wasn't exactly deserted, but we traversed it in leaps and bounds, taking advantage of the weak Martian gravity. Shapes scattered before us, chirping and squeaking. We reached the surface quickly. It was frigid night. We stumbled away into it, taking cover under some lichenous bushes while we looked for the highway. It was there, plain to see in the light of Phobos. We dashed on toward it, across what seemed to be a planted field. A white layer of ice-crystal mist flowed between and over those tough, cold-endured growths. For a minute, just as two shots rang out behind us, we were concealed by it completely. I thought to myself that, to the Martians, we were like escaped tigers or leopards or only worse. For a moment I felt that we had jumped from the frying-pan into the fire, but as we reached the highway my spirits began to soar. Perhaps, only perhaps, I'd see my family again before too long. There was traffic on the road, trains of great soft-tired wagons pulled by powered vehicles ahead. I wondered if, like on earth, much freight was moved at night to avoid congestion. When I was a college kid I used to hitchhike sometimes. Craig remarked. I don't guess we had better try that here, Klein said. What we can do is more of a hobo stunt. We found the westerly direction we needed easily enough from the stars. The constellations naturally looked the same as they did at home. We hid behind some rustling leaves, dry as paper, and waited for the next truck train to pass. When one came, we used the agility which Martian gravity gave us and rushed for the tail-end wagon and scrambled aboard. There we hid ourselves under a kind of coarse-fibered tarpaulin. Peering past boxes and bales, we kept cautious watch of the road. We saw strange plaques which might have served as highway signs. Again we saw buildings and passing lights. We were dopes, of course, ever to think that we were going to get away with this. Our overwrought nerves had urged us to unreasoning rebellion, and we had yielded to them. Our last hope was punctured when at last we saw the floodlights that bathed our ship. The taste on my tongue was suddenly bitter. There were roughly three things we could do now, and none of the choices was especially attractive. We could go back where we had come from. We could try to keep concealed in the countryside until we were finally hunted down or until our helmet air purifiers wore out and we smothered, or we could proceed to our rocket, which was now surrounded by a horde of Martians. Whichever one we chose, it looked as if the end would be the same. Death. I'm going for the ship, Klein said in a harsh whisper. The same with me, Craig agreed. It's where we want to go. If they're going to kill or capture us, it might as well be there. Suddenly, for no good reason, I thought of something. No special safeguards had been set up around that sealed room in the city. Escape had been easy. What did that mean? Okay, I said. Maybe you've both got the same hunch I just got. We walk very slowly toward our rocket. We get into the light as soon as possible. Does that sound right to you? We'd be going back to the plan, and it could be to common sense." All right, Klein answered. We'll give it a whirl, Craig agreed. We jumped off that freight wagon at the proper moment and moved toward the rocket. Nothing that we'd done on Mars, not even making our first acquaintance with the inhabitants, was as ticklish an act. 
Step after slow step, we approached the flood-lighted area, keeping close together before that horde which still looked horrible to us. One thing in our favor was that the Martians here had probably been warned of our escape by whatever means of communication they used, and they could certainly guess that our first objective would be our ship. Hence they would not be startled into violence by our sudden appearance. One of them fired a shot which passed over our heads, but we kept on going, making our movements as unfrightening as we could to counteract the dread of us that they must still have felt. Panic and the instinctive fear of the strange were balanced in our minds against reason. We got to the nose of our ship, then to the open doors of its airlock. The horde kept moving back before us, and we clamored inside. Martian eyes remained wary, but no more action was taken against us. Our cabin had been ransacked. Most of the loose stuff had been removed, even my picture of Alice and our two kids. Who cares about trifles? I muttered. Rap on wood, guys. I think we've won. So have the local people. You're right, Klein breathed. What other reason can there be for their not jumping us? Miller's passive strategy must have worked the first time. The story that we meant no harm must have gotten around. They don't want to make trouble either, and who with any sense does? I felt good. Maybe too good. I wondered if the Martians felt the same eager fascination for the enigmas of space that we felt, in spite of the same fear of the nameless that we too could feel. My guess was that they did. Undoubtedly, they also wanted interplanetary relations to be smooth. They could control their instinctive doubts to help attain this objective. If they coveted Earth's resources, it was still far away and could defend itself. Besides, they were not built to live in comfort under the raw conditions of its strange environment. Commerce was the only answer. Suddenly Mars was no longer a hostile region to me, out in the reaches of space. Again it was full of endless intriguing mysteries. It was beautiful, and knowledge of that beauty and mystery had been won in spite of some blundering. The scheme that we had practiced and that Miller had stuck to had paid off. It had broken down that first inevitable barrier of alienness between Earthmen and Martians enough so that they now had a chance to start looking for the countless similarities between us. A fraction of our food stores aboard the rocket had been taken, probably for analysis, but there was plenty more. We closed the airlock, repressurized the cabin from air tanks, and cooked ourselves a meal. Then we slept in shifts, one of us always awake as guard. At dawn Miller hammered at the window. He'd been brought out from the city. We weren't too surprised by then. Edel turned up at noon. He came in a kind of plane which landed right beside our rocket, making quite a noise. I recognized him easily enough. I'd know those eye-stalks anywhere. Besides, as he came out of the plane he was carrying the speech-tube that Klein had made for him. We led him into the cabin. Hello, gang he said, manipulating the tube with his tendrils. I see you passed your tests almost as well as I did on those weird things you were always making me take on Earth. So they were tests? I said. Sure. Otherwise, why do you think I didn't come to you before? They said you had to solve your own problems. How did they treat you? Miller wanted to know. 
Mostly my people were nice to me. They took me to a great desert city far away. Sort of the capital of Mars. It's in an oasis where a network of canals join. The canals fit in an old theory of your astronomers. They're ribbons of irrigated vegetation, but the water is piped underground. I spoke to my people in the way that you once thought I would, trying to convince them that you were okay, but I guess that you did most of the job yourselves. In spite of a lot of blunders, maybe we did, Etel, I replied dryly. What are your plans? Going to stay here now, or will you come back with us? I sensed that he would stay. It was natural. Maybe I even sensed a remoteness in him, a kind of withdrawal. Not unfriendly, but we both knew it was the parting of the ways. It's best for what we're trying to accomplish, Nolan, he said. I can tell my people about Earth. You can tell yours about Mars. Besides, I like it here. But I'll be back on Earth sometime, just so you'll come here again. Thanks to you guys for everything. I'd like to stay too, Nolan, Miller said, smiling. If they'll have me, under Edel's instructions, they might improve my quarters. So that much was settled. I felt a certain longing myself now, but I'm a family man with home still in my blood. Klein and Craig weren't tied as I was, but they had a lot to hold them to Earth. Besides, somebody had to report back. We were on Mars two days longer, though we didn't go any farther than back to the neighboring city. We took thousands of photographs. We were given samples of common Martian apparatus. Pieces of jade that were covered with queer, beautiful carvings made millions of years before. Bars of radioactive metal. Earth was still near enough in its orbit to be reached without too much trouble. We jacked our rocket into a vertical position from which an interplanetary takeoff could best be made. The cabin, swinging on its universal joints, stayed level. Martians watched interested, but still obviously not quite ready to cast aside their deeper suspicions. Yet when we blasted clear, we knew that a ship of theirs, halfway around the planet, was doing the same and would follow us back to Earth. Ambassadors, of course, and commercial attachés. I'd lost my picture of Alice, Patty, and Ron to some local souvenir hunter, but I knew that I was going to see them. The friendly contact between Earth and Mars can still be queered by somebody's silly blunder, of course, human or Martian. You have to be careful. But a beginning has been made. End of Part 2 of Stamped Caution End of Stamped Caution by Raymond Z. Galoon